I also love being a, a native of Atlanta, or really of Lilburn, a.k.a. Thrillburn, Georgia. <laughs> this is one of my favorite races of the year because you see... Yeah, you like that? Thrillburn. Yeah. I've never heard that before. Well, we got a second Waffle House, so... Oh, okay. Yeah, watch it. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in the Atlanta area. And I'm Patrick Ollinger, an endurance athlete, coach, and all-around good guy here in the Atlanta area. <laughs> Patrick and I were discussing just a couple of minutes ago how we were going to introduce ourselves here at the outset, and uh, that's what he came up with. Right on. All-around good guy. I couldn't agree more, Patrick. You are an all-around good guy. Um, thanks for joining us again, everybody, on this podcast. As you know, by now, we talk about issues of interest to the state, local, and uh, national and international endurance communities. Uh, racing season's underway, and we're going to talk about that here in just a minute. Uh, before we talk about that, I did want to uh, kind of go back and address uh, uh, some feedback that we got from one of our, e- our or one of our recent podcasts. Um, you'll recall we were talking about on the recent podcast um, the way that that watching cycling and watching triathlon and watching running um, was different from watching other sports like football and basketball and baseball, etc. Um, because you could learn more about how to actually do your sport better, things that you could apply in your race this weekend by watching uh, a pro do those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I very strongly believe that, and I've done that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, 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 watch, you watch a bike race, you watch the Tour de France even, you know, high-end bike races, top-end bike races, and, and they do things that help you understand how better to perform or how to perform better in your bike race. Same with running, same with triathlon. It goes for gears, it goes for tactics, it goes for training, all sorts of other things. Um, and uh, and I, I posited in that... Um, and good-looking guy, or good, all-around good guy, Patrick here. Uh, I'll take the me. addition. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, agree with me that, that that you just don't get that with basketball. Well, um, a listener reached out to us uh, who has a deep history in basketball and said, in fact, um, that's not the way it is in basketball. He said that that uh, you know back in the day, I used to watch the way that, that Michael Jordan exploded the basket and and. I tried to mimic that when I played, uh, and today people watch the way that Kyrie Irving plays, and they they uh, try and mimic that. And so, pros can actually uh, change the way that the that the game is played at much lower levels because people try and mimic what they do. Same thing we talked about essentially with uh, with with cycling and running um, and mm-hmm. and triathlon. So, Pat, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think I think that's that's very true. I think you know maybe the, the one caveat is. You know, in other sports, it's it's more so about how you compare to the other players. So, for example, you can't copy a power running back unless you're a powerful person who can run somebody over. You can't mm-hmm. copy a speed point guard unless you're quick enough to outrun your competition yeah. or to beat your, your competition to the hoop. Now, you can still learn how to shoot and kind of learn the technical skills from from the other athlete. But it's it's definitely interesting. And I think the other big takeaway is... In all sports, you can learn from the best. You can yeah. always kind of say, you know what, I really like how they did that, and I want to see how I can incorporate it into my game yeah. in some way, shape, or form. I think you're right, and I think that's a good point. I, I think that, that that your point about about what you can apply, I think that applies with endurance athletics as well. Yes. You know, um, particularly something like cycling, where, where there's a pretty wide variance of types of cyclists who are all in the same race. You right. Know, whereas marathoners, they're all running a marathon. Um, but but cyclists, you could you could very easily look at a particular cyclist and say, I want to ride my bike just like he does at that cadence or attack in that manner. And if you're if you don't have those physical attributes that that particular cyclist does, you're not going to be able to ride like that cyclist does. Right. Or the strategy that works for him is not necessarily going to work for you. Um, and so so yeah, I think seeing them, being inspired by them, being provoked by them, but then also considering, okay, can you actually do those things? <laughs> right. Right. Um, is, is a big part of it. I, I also will submit, though, I, I, I still, and, 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 I, and I, I need to think about it a little bit more to maybe put a finer point on it, but I still think there's something different about watching endurance sports, if for no other reason, because for and this, is, this is the same reason in two different ways. Everybody who takes part in endurance sport is on the same course, or at least can do the same course, as the pros do. Mm-hmm. And so you can't be in the Tour de France... But the day before the but before the Tour de France rides up Mont Ventoux, you can ride your bike up Mont Ventoux. 
um, you know, one of the ITL coaches, as a matter of fact, this summer is going with uh, Trek bicycles, um, and he's going to ride a lot of the iconic climbs of the Tour de France while the Tour de France is going on. And he's not going to be obviously in the race, but but he's going to be able to ride those same climbs, and then he'll be able to watch them do the climbs that he just did. You know, in Kona, you're on the course with the pros. Right. Um, they start the pros early, um, but it's a world championship race, and you are sharing the course with these pros that you follow on Instagram and, and, and everything else. Um, so I, I, same thing with the Boston Marathon, same thing with, with, with any major marathon. So I, I, I do feel like there's something different about that. You, know, you can't watch the Super Bowl and then be like, I'm going to go play on that field now. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Or I would say you're on the right track, but it's almost more like, so when you're running a marathon, you're really not competing with the other people. Mm-hmm. right? Like if some guy takes off, and runs a four-minute first mile. You don't have to go with them, <laughs> right? Your real competition is gravity. Yeah. But in other sports, if the other guy comes barreling at you, you have to react. Because mm-hmm. once again, your your competition is the other player. I see your point. You, you know. Yeah. So you, so And there are some skills, like I said, like if you can drain an 18-foot shot in basketball, it doesn't matter what the defense is, you're going to win. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the other ways of scoring are dependent on you know how tall the other player is, for example, mm-hmm. or how quick the other player is. I see, I see. And so, so, so what you're what you're positing is that is that because running specifically and cycling is very dependent on the way the race unfolds. And actually, yes. next week when we talk about Boston, we're going to talk about the way the races unfold and how that that certainly influences the pro race. But mm-hmm. um, but in running, your point is that since since you run your own race mm-hmm. essentially, mm-hmm. that 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 you have more control about how it unfolds. Correct. Yeah. That's an interesting point. Whereas in basketball or in cycling or, or, in, or in other sports that, that are more team-oriented sports um, and more direct competition, like you're saying, what your approach is is determined by who it is you're facing off against. Right. Okay. That's an interesting point, too. Um, no, I, but I, I totally agree with your, with your overall takeaway, though, that, that, that we can definitely learn from the best. Mm-hmm. Um, and and by all means, uh, thanks to to that listener uh, for for reaching out to us and and sharing that with us. Um, um, we always like getting comments, uh, be they via email or Twitter or or on the side of the track or whatever it happens to be, um, because I think that that's that provokes us and I consider us to be thoughtful people and not thin skinned people. And so so if there's something mm-hmm. you disagree with or something you have a different take on, um, we'd really like it when you when you reach out to us and and, and provoke us on those things. Um, anyway. Like I said, racing season has started. Um, and so if you're a triathlete, undoubtedly the uh, season uh, is at hand here. Um, uh, a lot of races start in, in April and in May. Uh, a lot of people have early season targets in May and in June, which is cool. Um, Ironman Canada, which a lot of people around here are doing, mm-hmm. is, in, is in late July. Um, so it's about 16 weeks away, and 16 weeks is when you really start to sort of turn it on um, and uh, and begin focusing a lot more on what you're doing. Um, if you follow different uh, different pro triathletes uh, Instagrams, uh, there are a lot, um, or, or their YouTube channels because YouTube channels are kind of an in thing now. Uh, should we get a YouTube channel? Maybe I don't. I don't know much about YouTube. <laughs> kind of scares me at this point. <laughs> I asked my wife, and she's like, "No, no, no, don't get one." But I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of feeling like maybe we should get a YouTube channel. Anyway, oh. um, but like Miranda Carfrey, who uh, just had a baby and is currently still exclusively breastfeeding her child, um, announced that she's doing Ironman Cairns, which is in September, mm-hmm. um, as a run up towards uh, September. No, it's earlier than that. I think it's in August, maybe. Um, or June or July, sometime, um, and she's a uh, but but she's doing that as part of a run up to, to 2018 Kona, um, mm-hmm. and you know she's a she's a former Kona champion and a and a course record holder there, um, so so obviously great to see that, um, and then the first big major bike race, big classic bike race of the year was was last year at Milan or last week at Milan San Remo, uh, and it was brilliant. Mm-hmm. If uh, if Milan San Remo, and I'm telling you this because I know you didn't see it. If Milan San Remo is is a preview or it's indicative of what racing season uh, is going to be over the course of 2018 in pro cycling, it's going to be a good season, man. Um, so it was won by a guy named Vincenzo Nibali. Um, he is an attacker. Um, he attacked on the uh, this small hill um, near the finish uh, called the Poggio. Uh, he got away from the group and then he descended like a maniac and then had to hold off about 30 or 40 riders. 
um, as they're chasing him down over the last 5K in the final run into the finish in uh, in San Remo. Uh, if you're a cycling fan, if you haven't watched it, go back and watch the last 10K or so of that race. Um, it was brilliant. It was fantastic. And then, if you're also a track fan, before we move on into all the, uh, the future races here, uh, the NCAA indoor meet. Uh, was a couple of weeks ago, um, and it was a brilliant meet. Um, and just to kind of sum it up here, to borrow from uh, letsrun.com, they said, quote, During the span of three hours, the audience saw two world records, two more American records, and a total of six collegiate records across the 60, 200, 400, and 4x400 meter relays. Um, so, yeah, two world records, two American records, and six collegiate records. Um, all in one night of track and field uh, at the NCAA indoor meet uh, a couple weeks ago, and that doesn't happen. That's, <laughs> yeah. I mean, track is almost like ba- is a lot more like baseball before the steroid era, where records stood for decades yeah. because the sport hasn't fundamentally changed in you know a hundred years or so. Right. right. You know, there aren't really new strategies like in football with the spread offense or right. in basketball with the uh, triangle or mm-hmm. you know the the three point shot. So for record that many records to fall in one night, that is yeah. impressive. At a college meet, yes, yeah, and, and granted, it was the college meet. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's like it's like the most competitive college meet. But but yeah, I mean, the guy who ended up setting the world record in the in the men's four hundred mm-hmm. um, was was uh, twenty years old from USC, and then the four by four. I saw that. That was four by four. The four by four is a it's it's a relay, mm-hmm. so that means you have to have four people from the same team actually come together and all run fast. Um, and, and think about all the national teams mm-hmm. that where they could just pick the four best professional 400-meter runners to all run the 4x4. Four four. Mm-hmm. Um, and this collegiate team actually broke the world record in, in the men's 4x4. Four four. It's incredible. Yeah, especially yeah. when, I mean, I don't think, surely they have not peaked. I don't know quite as much about the 400 meters, mm-hmm. but they have not peaked physically no, at age 22. Yeah, no, certainly not. And, and they haven't even, I mean, they obviously ran super fast races, but... Everybody runs faster outdoors than they do indoors. Mm-hmm. And so these guys are, I mean, they're running fast, but they're going to be running faster. The guys and girls are going to be running faster in a couple of months. Yeah. Um, yeah. Amazing. Incredible. Exciting. Mm-hmm. You know, again, if this bodes for, uh, bodes for 2018, we, uh, we have some, some exciting things in store. Mm-hmm. So you want to talk about local race. Yeah. Speaking of exciting races. So this past Sunday, um, we had the Publix uh, Atlanta Half Marathon, mm-hmm. uh, and it was an exciting event for a number of reasons. First and foremost, this race, from a communal, from a communal perspective, was not very big five years ago or so. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't even believe I even heard of it until 2014, but um, ATC, the Atlanta Track Club, took it over in 2016, and they put on a phenomenal event. We had, I think, 10,000 runners run the 5K, the Half Marathon, and the Marathon combined. Right on. And um, ITL specifically actually had a had a very strong showing, which was a lot of fun. And a, most a, a strong showing of which you were a part. Yeah, and most all, all, all around good guy and being a little bit modest about his running at this point. So says Patrick, who finished second, third, third, second across the finish line, third in the uh, actual. Finish. Oh, tip time. Um, but. More importantly, the Kyle Pease Foundation had a great showing mm-hmm. at the uh, race this uh, this past weekend. Um, all in all, they had 58 athletes in wheelchairs with well over 100 people pushing and over 200 volunteers total. Yeah. And I can't remember how much money they raised, but it was a pretty staggering amount. So to everybody who who pushed, who was a part of that, it really was a very strong showing. And it really shows what the, what the running community is about. It's not one, you know, if you're pushing a wheelchair, you're obviously sacrificing time, right? That doesn't speed you up. That doesn't help you place higher. And that shows a real level of sacrifice and um, selflessness, which I think is one of the the great things about our community in general. And I also love being a a native of Atlanta, or really of Lilburn, a.k.a. Thrillburn, Georgia. (laughs) This is one of my favorite races of the year because you see... Yeah, you like that? Thrillerbird. Yeah. I've never heard that before. Well, we got a second Waffle House, so... Oh, okay. Yeah, watch out. (laughs) I'm from from Marietta, which was recently named the the, the nerdiest small town in the United States, so... um, Which is something we wear with pride. I was about to say, it explains a lot for you. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm right at home. (laughs) So had you grown up in New York, things might have turned out different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I definitely wouldn't make it in Thrillburn. (laughs) (laughs) Um... 
Yes. Uh, anyways, so back to the public back, side. Back to this important message about inclusion. That we're trying to make. <laughs> so, back to the public side. What I love about about it is, it really it's a race that shows off all the best parts of Atlanta. Mm-hmm. You start and end in Centennial Olympic Park. You run by um, Auburn Avenue where Martin Luther King was born. You run by the Ebenezer Baptist Church where he preached. Yeah. You run by the King Center. You run through Virginia Highlands. You run through Piedmont Park. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure I'm missing some. I'm just kind of going off the top run of the my Georgia head. Georgia Tech, man. Oh, yes. Georgia Tech, the one and only. Yeah. And it really is a race where you you run the 13 miles and you get done. And you're like, man, I love this city. Yeah. Um, so I that's something I really enjoy. The Atlanta running community, as we've talked about before, is kind of underrated. You know, when people think of great national running communities, they think Boston, New York, Chicago. Boulder. Um, Boulder. Mm-hmm. But um, I actually just spoke with somebody who moved to Boulder here about a year ago, and he said, I had no idea this was here, this Atlanta, this great running community. Really? And um, that's one of the things I love about this race. It brings out the best in people. Yeah. And it, it really shows off the best of what I, a city I enjoy and a, a group of people I've always enjoyed. Yeah, it comes at a time of year where there's a real wide variety of people run it. Um, a lot of triathletes run it um, mm-hmm. because you know they're kind of coming out of their their off seasons or their their, their transition seasons, and they're they're um, they they, they want to race on the calendar, but there's not any triathlons in March yet, and all that sort of thing. Right. Um, so so yeah, there's a pretty wide swath of people doing it, and and I totally agree with you about the course itself. I'm nervous because they've announced that the course is going to be different next year. I saw that. At least for the marathon. I don't know if it's going to be for the for the half marathon as well, but but at least for the marathon, it's going. They, they've announced it's going to be a new course and a new name next year. They said um, it might be because is it going from the Georgia to the Atlanta? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I was talking with somebody from ATC, and they said, you know. When people think Georgia, they think of a bit yeah. more rural Georgia, but yeah. then when they think of Atlanta, it's a very different... Yeah, it's like Chicago point. and Illinois. There's a big difference between the <laughs> Illinois Marathon and yeah. the Chicago Marathon. Yeah, I would imagine. Is there an Illinois Marathon? I have no idea, but yeah. it, you, know, <laughs> you get my point. It's, it does not yeah. sound nearly as international. Yeah, no, or yeah. if, 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 if you're planning to do a, a marathon in Chicago and you sign up for the Illinois Marathon, <laughs> it's, it's in Champaign or, or right. Springfield, you might be a little bit uh, disappointed. Right. No offense to anybody who lives there. Um, it's like going to McDougal's instead of McDonald's. <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, they, the the marathon course too, and I haven't run the marathon course before, but um, we did have a couple of athletes who did it, as a matter of fact, um, one of whom got a big PR, which we were psyched about, uh, and who got her picture in the, the marathon photo circular that went out afterwards encouraging people to buy photos. Like, the exemplar photo was yeah. her, which yeah. is just like icing on the cake, so cool. But anyway... Um, to the uh, point where when I first saw that picture, I was like, oh, I didn't realize I opened an ITL right, email. Right, right, Yeah, and it turned, no, it's, <laughs> it went to everybody, all 10,000 of those folks, which is pretty cool. Um, but anyway, um, it, um, 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 the, the marathon course goes through all those same things, mm-hmm. and then it, it dips out into Decatur. Right. Um, you know, which is one of the small cities that's right next to Atlanta, which is a great area too. And, and from what I've heard, the support out there is really, really good. Mm-hmm. Um, and the support in town is great. So, yeah, it's a good race. But um, back to the point about um, the Kyle Pease Foundation. 58 people did that race, which is uh, 58 assisted athletes in that race, which is an incredible, incredible number. Um, and uh, those of you who have been listening to the podcast for a while will recall that two years ago, um, leading up to the public's race, as a matter of fact. So this week, two years ago, almost exactly two years ago, um, I interviewed, uh, first I interviewed Kyle, or Brent Pease and uh, and Paul Link um, about the Kyle Pease Foundation and, and about what it's like to, to push and to assist. And then I interviewed Kyle Pease, um, who is one of the assisted athletes, um, and, and talked about um, uh, his experience with the race. And, and my big takeaway from those conversations, and I encourage you to go back and listen to them, they're great, um, and I really appreciate all that Brent and Paul and Kyle had to say. Um, but one of my big takeaways is that when you think about the things that we get from endurance sports mm-hmm. um, and the enriching aspects of endurance sports and how we're made better as people by endurance sports, um, those things, those abilities to enrich yourself should be available to everybody. There's no reason why somebody who's in a wheelchair um, or, or um, who has cerebral palsy shouldn't be able to, to access a lot of those same really enriching, um, enlivening things that come from taking part in endurance sports. Um, and so helping those folks to, to also uh, get those aspects of sports, I think, is a great thing. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, kudos to the Atlanta Track Club for for working with the Kyle Pease Foundation on that. Um, they've been working with them also when it comes to the Peachtree Road Race over the course of the past few years. I actually pushed in the Peachtree Road Race last July fourth. It's hard. Yeah, <laughs> it's tough, man. Especially if you're trying to go fast. Um, so so yeah, it's it, it's hard to do. Um, all right, let's talk about some research. Yes, um, you first or me. Uh, go ahead. All right, I'll go ahead. So there's an interesting piece about um, uh, about the uh, the variance of physical responses to caffeine uh, that came out just last week, as a matter of fact. Um, it was from Nancy Guest, who is a doctoral candidate at the University of Toronto. Um, and then doctoral candidates always have supervisors. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I imagine this was her dissertation research. This is the research that she has to publish and prove in order to uh, to become doctor guest. Um, um, and so her supervisor is a guy named um, Ahmed El-Sohimi. Um, and he's a professor of nutritional science at the uh, the University of Toronto there. Um, but they, they published a piece called Caffeine CYP1A2 Genotype and Endurance Performance in Athletes. So it was in the, uh, the Medicine and Science and Sports and Exercise Journal. And like I said, it was just actually last week or a couple of weeks ago. Um, and it's kind of interesting stuff. Um, the, the research on the use of caffeine in sports has been pretty uniform that it's a benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, and that there's some drawback to it. You need to experiment with it in practice. And uh, you need to make sure that, that uh, it's not going to give you too much stomach upset and things like that. Um, um, but generally speaking, they've said, you know, there's a 3 to 6% increase you're going to get in, in performance just by using caffeine. Um, and, and like I say, there have been loads of studies about that. Um, and it's one of those things that, that I was listening to a podcast recently with Alex Hutchinson, who, uh, you know, the, the guy who wrote Sweat Science originally for Runner's World and now does it for Outside Online. Um, mm-hmm. And the book Endure. Yeah. And the book Endure, yeah, which is sitting on my nightstand right now because I keep reading Star Wars books rather than reading, you know, Endure, which I need to read. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I'm on like my eighth Star Wars book over the course of the past three months. Anyway, uh, but this one's a good one. It's about Jen Erso, who's my favorite. There's a picture of her right here in the yeah, room with that. us. But anyway, um, uh <laughs> The so distracted thing about Star Wars now. Okay, back it up. Um, yeah, so so Alex Hutchinson said that that over the course of years and years of his job being to look at research, mm-hmm. um, he's kind of one of his general rules is is you're not going to get faster with a pill. Like any supplement you read about, it's not going to really do anything for you, um, except for uh, beet juice mm-hmm. and caffeine. Yep. He says those are the two things. And he, of course, says, you know, what you and I said last week in the, in the race prep, prep uh, that, that you need to make sure that you, you um, use it in practice, you need to experiment with it, all that sort of thing. Um, but, but the science is solid on beet juice and, and um, caffeine. Well, that being said, um, you know, everybody else hears that and says, oh, well, let me go out and get caffeinated. Um, what this study did is it said, let's actually look at the variance of, of people's responses to caffeine. Um, and so they took 101 well-trained male athletes, and I'll talk about that in just a minute. Um, they took them from a variety of sports, uh, marathon running, boxers, soccer players, all that sort of thing. Um, and then they had them do three 10K cycling time trials. Um, and we've talked before about why you know cycling time trials are indoors. You're able to control all these various factors, all that sort of thing. Um, and they separated them into diff- three different groups. Uh, the first group got a placebo. The second group got a low dose of caffeine. And the third uh, group got a higher dose of caffeine. Uh, the low dose of caffeine was two milligrams per kilogram, two milligrams per kilogram of body weight. Uh, higher dose is four milligrams per kilogram of body weight. Uh, to give you an idea, um, 70 kilograms um, is about what I weigh and that's 154 pounds. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so, uh, 154 pounds, two milligrams, 70 kilograms, that'd be 140 milligrams or 280 milligrams of caffeine. A cup of coffee has about 125. Wow. Um, a diet Coke has about 60. Most gels have 25 to 50. Okay. So most of the gels I use have 25. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so over the course of a marathon, you're going to only, I'm only going to get about 125, you know, uh, milligrams of caffeine, right? Uh, black tea has about 80 milligrams. Green tea has about 40 or 50 milligrams, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, that's the general idea. Um, so they're taking in either about 100, um, you know, between 100 and 200 or 100 and 300 um, uh, grams of caffeine. Um, and they did the test and they found that the athletes all cycled 3% faster with the high dose of caffeine compared to the placebo. Got it, right? Right. So, so kind of the same results. So confirming, yeah, right. same results everybody else has found. But here's where they were different, and this is the reason why I brought up this study, um, and this is where it kind of gets interesting. 
Um, they also gave the athletes a spit test um, to test um, which version of a gene called CYP1A2 each of the subjects had. Um, more than 95% of the caffeine that you drink is metabolized by an enzyme that's encoded in that gene. Um, and without getting too into it, there are three different types. So you have AA type, which is fast metabolizers. You have AC type, which is slow metabolizers. And you have CC type, which is very slow metabolizers. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and what they found is that there was a huge variance of the response to caffeine that people had based upon which enzyme they had encoded in that gene. Um, specifically, they found that AA people, who are the fast metabolizers, which is about half of the people they, they studied, um, they went 4.8% faster with the low caffeine dose and 6.8% faster with the high caffeine dose. So the more caffeine they got, the better they did. Mm-hmm. Um, significantly better. 6.8% is enormous. Yeah. Um, like, you train for 6.8%. <laughs> that's like the difference between coming off the couch and actually training, I feel like. I mean, that's enormous. Right. Um, uh, the AC, which would be slow metabolizers, they found no real benefit. Um, it was kind of a wash. They said, you know, they didn't slow them down, but it didn't speed them up any. The CC people, the very slow metabolizers, which is about 8% of their research subjects, um, the more caffeine they got, the slower they went. And at the highest dose, they were 13.7% slower than, than uh, they were without the caffeine. Um, that's kind of a phenomenal variance there. Um, and so, so people taking the same amount of caffeine can go anywhere from 6.8% faster all the way to 13.7% slower in this one trial. And it's a big trial. It's 101 people, 101 male athletes here. So um, pretty phenomenal variance there that they found. What do you think? Wow. All right. So first of all, I was kind of on the edge of my seat as you were <laughs> revealing the results because I'm a coffee addict. So if there was a study that ruined my nirvana that I could have a <laughs> cup of coffee before a race, I would be very upset with that researcher. Yeah. So now my question is, how do you find out if you're a fast metabolizer or not? Okay. So, so I mean, is it like body weight? I mean, so, I don't even so, know. No, it's, it's all about this. Well, at least for this study, it's all about the, the, the enzyme that's encoded by that gene. Right. 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 So, and, and 95% of the caffeine is metabolized by that enzyme. Right. And so it's a pretty good indication. Right. You know, if you're, if you're a fast metabolizer, you're going to get a big boost from it. If you're a slow metabolizer, you're going to get, it's actually going to make you worse. It's going to make you slower. The theory, by the way, is that the negative effects of caffeine, like sitting in your body longer, Right, like that that enables the negative effects to 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 take hold before the positive effects can do anything for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's kind of the general the, the the general theory on that. Even though it probably needs to be tested a little bit further, um, you know, I, I I mean, you can obviously get genetic testing, right? You know, if you really want to. And 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 full disclosure here, the uh, the guy Ahmed El Sohimi, who's a professor of nutritional science at the University of of Toronto, who's a supervisor for the study. He actually is on the board of advisor for uh, of advisors for a group that actually does that sort of testing, um, and so that being said, it's still a good study. Right. Um, but but you know one could potentially point to a conflict of interest there. Um, but um, I think the best way is kind of like what we talked about last week with race prep. Try it and practice. Yeah. See what happens. You know. Um, you know if, if if it works for you, if you feel great, then great. Don't start using it for every workout. Right, um, but but start using it when you when you get into races, um, and if it doesn't work for you, if it even slows you down, you know you would find that out through practice. I think find find out through trying it without having to actually get a genetic test here. Um, but obviously, it, it definitely throws shade on the whole idea that caffeine works for everybody. Yes, um, big time. Yeah, I mean because it clearly does not. <laughs> it and works. It works for most people, um, or at least half of the people. You know, at least in this study, 49% of the people were fast metabolizers, and only 8% were the ones that were very slow metabolizers. Right. Um, but, but for So for about half the people, assuming that the, this study group is representative of the general population, uh, at least half of them, it is going to help. I think it helps me. I think um, it definitely helps me. Um, I mean, that's my ritual is to have a cup of coffee right when I wake up, and then mm-hmm. a little bit, probably like a half of one a little bit later, mm-hmm. to make sure I'm fully alert and kind of ready to go. Mm-hmm. And not slogging through the beginning of the race. Yeah, I drink a cup of tea like I would normally any other morning, but I don't have a second or a third, which I do a lot of mornings. Mm-hmm. So I'll have a cup of tea, um, and which is about 125 probably. Yeah. And then and then I'll take some amount of caffeinated gels. Okay. 
power bar, I think it's interesting enough. Like I, I, I've mentioned on this podcast before, I tend to use power gels because they're thinner mm-hmm. and they feel lighter to me. Um, they recently have changed their flavor offerings such that they only offer one flavor without caffeine in it. Mm-hmm. They offer like six flavors with caffeine, but they only offer one flavor without caffeine, and it's vanilla, and I don't want that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. that's so, right. So kind of, I mean, I'm, I'm hashtag kinda, runner problems, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, but but I'm I'm kind of in a little bit of a quandary for what to do before I do my next marathon. You know, am I going to try out? I'm going to try out some new gels, is what it's going to mean, right? Um, because I don't want to be using vanilla gels, but we'll see. Or maybe I'll just go all caffeine. Man, we'll have to see how that works. Yeah. And I think that what a lot of these studies show, and really, it's so interesting. A lot of these studies confirm what coaches have known for sixty years. You know, since Bowerman or however yeah. long ago he was in Lydiard. Yeah. And that is, everybody's a little different. Yeah, You can't make a generic statement and say, all right, everybody's doing an easy run Monday. Everyone's doing this on Tuesday. Everybody's having a caffeine, cup of coffee. Yeah. You know, and the real takeaway is listen to your body and listen to athletes when they're telling you or your body's telling you. Yeah. You know, that cup of coffee, that did not feel good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. No Conversely, listen to it when it does, even though the research says... You know, hey, it increases 5% or something. 6.8%. Incredible. Right. <laughs> you know, it's, we are individuals. We, yeah. we you know, in, in so many ways, we are, everything we do is still an estimated guess. Mm-hmm. It's a highly, or estimated guess, that was a great line, educated guess. <laughs> um, you know, they can be highly educated, but just because something works for the general population doesn't always mean it works for you. Now, yeah. you still want to play the odds. Mm-hmm. You know, to some degree. Yeah. But I would say the real takeaway is, you know, listen listen to your body and also don't do anything new. Mm-hmm. Just because you read that, caf- if you read the week before the marathon that caffeine increases performance by 4%, mm-hmm. you probably don't want to then chug two cups of coffee before your first marathon or if you've right. never done that before. Right. Or your first race. Yeah. No, and you've heard this before too, the idea that, that, that every runner or every athlete... Uh, is a scientific experiment with an N of one. Yeah. You know, that, that, that you are literally your own experiment. Right. Um, and, you know, when we talk about research on here, and we were talking about pros and the examples of pros, you know, a mm-hmm. couple of weeks ago. And then, of course, with, with the email that we got, we were talking about here just a minute ago. All of that stuff is input. Yeah. You know, and, and you pay attention to all of those sorts of things, but then ultimately you have to, you have to take a real scientific approach. Um, you have to kind of say, all right, this works for me, this doesn't work for me, this works for a lot of people, but it doesn't work for me. Mm-hmm. Um, let me do what works for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have, to, you have to take as much as you can um, a sober and objective analysis of those sorts of things. Um, I think that's what good athletes do. You know, they, they don't just download the latest conventional wisdom or the latest uh, studies or what some pro is doing and, and say, okay, this is what I'm going to do now because it's clear this is what works. Mm-hmm. They, they consider it, they evaluate it, they try it, and they say, okay, that did work or didn't work for me. And I, I think that's worthwhile, um, for sure. I should also mention, last word on the study, uh, there were no females in the study. I said I would mention this. Um, no women in the study because uh, they believe that the, the metabolism of caffeine might also be tied to the hormonal cycle. Um, and because women's hormones are on a monthly cycle, um, they would have to, to, in order to get enough data over the course of that, they would have to actually study women for four months. And that would involve, among other things, them abstaining from caffeine for four months. And they're going to have a hard time mm-hmm. finding 100 women to abstain from caffeine for four months. You know, The guys that were in the study, the men that were in the study, it was a four-week-long study. Um, and so it took, it took, they had to abstain from caffeine for four weeks. That's a little bit more doable, a little bit more possible to incentivize that perhaps you know right. with 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 a gift certificate at amazon.com or something but um but but to try and, and convince 100 women not to drink caffeine for for four months for the good of science that's that's a very difficult study operationalize <laughs> yes it is <laughs> yeah um all right man tell us what, what you got all right so uh mine is is not the happiest of studies and i'm going to Make sure I, 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 get, I get this right because so I'll be kind of reading some of the some of the lines from the study. But um, the Governor's Highway Safety Association released a report earlier this week that stated that the number of pedestrian fatalities in the United States has grown substantially faster than all other all other traffic deaths. Specifically, the number of pedestrian fatalities increased twenty seven percent from two thousand seven to two thousand sixteen. 
while all other traffic deaths decreased by about 14% over that same period. Um, Wait, so so to, just to underscore what you just said here, so so traffic deaths generally are declining, correct. except for when it comes to pedestrians, which are up 27%. Correct. Yeah. Um, it so, has been more than 25 years since the United States experienced this level of pedestrian fatalities. And the reason that's important, if you think about it, more and more we keep studying... Because cars were new to our species not too, too long ago. <laughs> so it took a while to figure out what rules would lead people to drive safer right. and would lead to right. less deaths. So, like, right. in general, there's just been a trend that less and less deaths right. um, as we kind of move forward through time. Uh, I'm trying to kind of read through some, some of the, the facts here, but... Pedestrian deaths started to skyrocket in about 2010. And I remember I, I, I first found this um, article or this, this report because it was posted on Twitter. And it was pointing out that one of the researchers stated that they didn't really know. Or let me, let me before I even get to that point, let me say the reason I'm sharing this is because you know, this mm-hmm. is a, a podcast for runners, triathletes, you know, anybody in the endurance community. So in many ways, we're all pedestrians. And this is something that... Yeah, run, a runner would be counted as a pedestrian in that study. Yeah, and in, I mean, I would say we're a pedestrian on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. So this is something that hits very close to home, even though I have never said, Hi, my name is Patrick Ollinger, I'm a pedestrian. <laughs> um, that is how I would be categorized on a daily basis in, yeah. this, in this study or in this report. Right. And as I've discussed before with, maybe not on this podcast, but in general, I did lose a friend a couple years ago who was struck by a car while he was running. Cameron Bean. Right. You obviously have been in a bike accident where you and several others were struck by a car. A bike wreck, yeah. And, and, and we were run over um, by a guy who was just in a hurry and said that he was, and just decided to take a left directly into us. Um, it ended my triathlon career. Um, yeah. You know, I don't run my bike outside anymore as a result. And, and so that was, had a good triathlon career. I enjoyed it and I was pretty good at it. And that's, that was the end of my triathlon career as of 2015. Yeah, and it's something we don't often talk about because, honestly, it's not a fun topic, but it is an important one. Yeah. If you've ever been on a Thursday morning run with me, you know I'm constantly, I'm almost like the mom of the group, constantly like, stay on the left, stay on the left, stay on the left, don't float to the center, stay on the left, you know, because it only takes one for something bad to happen. Oh, yeah. And more importantly, just because, you know, if you're a runner, if you are a triathlete, as it, what happened with you, just because you have the right of way... Mm-hmm. doesn't mean you're going to that, that doesn't mean anything when the realities of physics of a car meet right. the human body no we were doing nothing wrong and that's that was one of the things that was difficult and i've never really entirely gotten over mm-hmm. um we were wearing bright colored clothes we were riding a small group mm-hmm. we were on well-traveled roads um i had passed that spot a hundred times in my cycling and triathlon career mm-hmm. um and and just on this one occasion this guy said Oh, I can. I, I want to hurry up and make this left turn before the cyclists get to the driveway. Yeah. Um, and must have drastically underestimated the speed at which we were traveling, um, and just literally took a left turn directly into us. Mm-hmm. I hit all three of us. Yeah. Um, and two of us were knocked out and went up under the truck. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it's um, and yeah, of a, a, a very little consolation is the fact that he got a ticket. Right. A very little consolation is the fact that that he was he was at fault for it. Yeah. Um, that that is no consolation to me, and it's and it's certainly no consolation to my wife. Right. Um, anyway. And I can tell you, in Cameron's case, that ended up being like a two-year court battle. Oh yeah. I mean, it was just resolved last summer. The incident occurred September 2015. We had the funeral September 2015, and really, all that meant was the parents spent the next two years looking at pictures of their. Right. son throughout court battles and they were almost like we just want to I don't want to speak for them but just want to be done with it yeah just you know we just want to move on yeah. so all that is to say even if you win the court battle you don't win, win the war so to speak no. so yeah. it is the onus is on runners and cyclists to some degree to almost assume that the worst could happen yeah you know I don't, I don't know if I said that articulately but you know um, so that's why I wanted to share this and kind of one of the things, to kind of bring it back a, a bit more as to why why have we seen the increase. The, this Just to clarify, the report did not state this, but I looked at the kind of the graph of the uh, how the pedestrian fatalities have been increasing over time. And really, they seem to kind of start to skyrocket 
in 2010. And so I immediately had a theory. And I Google what the iPhone sales have looked like over the last 10 years or so. And, I mean, I'm, I can show you the graph right here. Obviously, you can't see it on the podcast. But it is a textbook exponential increase in iPhone sales hitting right at about 2010, mm-hmm. which, lo and behold, <laughs> is roughly the same time that the uh, pedestrian deaths have increased significantly. Yeah. And you can tell it's only increasing just as the pedestrian deaths are increasing. Yeah. So... I have several things to say say about that. One, first and foremost, when you're running, when you're cycling, stay on the left side of the road. Or are you on the right side if you cycle? If you're, if you're cycling, you ride with traffic. Yeah, you ride with traffic. Mm-hmm. Pay attention, and, and honestly, and assume the other person is glancing at their phone if you, if possible. Yeah. You know, just you know, if, if it's a turn, if it's a curve, give give them an extra couple feet because you never know when they glance down. Yeah. Um and always be just to always try to be aware. If if you're running on a busy road where there's no sidewalk, don't run on that road again. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. And and then I would say too, uh when uh when you're driving, make it a goal not to look at your phone. Yeah. You know, I can tell you I so I bought my first smartphone in twenty twelve. And I remember in 2014, I would constantly catch myself at a stoplight. Oh, glancing my phone. What's right. you know what's going on? What's what's the update? And finally, about about the time of Cameron's death, I said, I just need to turn this thing off when I'm mm-hmm. in the car. Yeah, you know, because it only takes a moment. And it's definitely interesting to see because you know runners, you can see it's inter- it's interesting because the the idea of smartphone use increasing traffic accidents. Mm-hmm is something that I don't think is very widely known or discussed. Mm-hmm. But I feel as a runner, I constantly see cars where you can just see that they're looking down. Yeah. and Or maybe they're not quite paying attention. Because you can see into the car. Because you can see it. Yeah. Right. And when you are the person looking down, not paying attention, yeah. you can't see that other people are doing the same. Yeah. And that's a lot scarier than just, yeah. you know, like you mentioned, the sample size of one. Um, a bit earlier with with athletes, most people just have the sample size of one saying, "Oh yes, today I looked down at my phone while I was driving," whereas a runner can see car after car coming. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting stuff. You know, when when I was when I was a much younger runner, um, um, I I developed habits because um, you know I went to Georgia Tech and I ran mm-hmm. there, and then I moved to Washington D.C. and I ran there. You know, and so so I had these very you know urban running experiences. Yeah. Um, and uh, and for those of you who have never been to D.C. Washington D.C. is filled with Type A personalities. It's, it's like New York, where it's like yeah. if you're like first in line and the the bus door opens, like you're gonna get trampled like yeah. by yeah. everyone. Yeah, everybody's in a hurry and they yeah. all have a real sense of self importance and all that. Right. Sort of um, but um, but I remember that that uh, yeah, I two things. One, I developed a whole lot of practices around just sort of general safety. Mm-hmm. Um, for example. Um, when a car is turning right and you're coming from their right, mm-hmm. that's when it's super dangerous. Yes. Um, because they're only looking to the left, and so they're not looking at you coming from the right. Correct. Um, and so, so I, inst- I, I developed an instinct for being hyper-cautious in that instance. Mm-hmm. Um, another example, I developed the, the, the general practice of when I was crossing a line of cars who were waiting at a stoplight or a stop sign, of crossing behind, behind the first car rather than in front of the first car. Stuff like that. Um, but then the other thing I was going to say about the second thing is that I also had a little bit more of an attitude. And granted, I was, you know, in my early 20s, and so I had more attitude in my life in general, um, as Josh Glass alluded to there a couple weeks ago. Um, <laughs> but um, but but I also was kind of like, you know, I'm, I'm here and I'm, I'm going to make you know I'm here. You know, and so if a car came close to hitting me, I would bang on the, 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 the hood or, you know, yell at him or something else like that. Um but that was a different time because it would be because people were looking in the other direction or were distracted or something else like that, not because they were looking down at their phones. And so, so now I wouldn't do those things now. For one thing, I'm 20 years older and don't have the attitude that I did then. But, but secondly, and more importantly, it's, 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 more, it's more that people don't see you because they're not looking 
anymore. Right. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. And, 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 I, and I feel like that's a far more dangerous situation than somebody looking at you and being like, oh, I have time before this runner comes, you know, or something like that. And, and yeah, I got, got run over because, uh, because a guy, you know, misestimated or, or underestimated our speed. Um, but, but like not even seeing you, that's scary. Yeah, because um, the like the like the guy running, hitting you, for example, that feels like much more of a choice. Yeah. Whereas now, looking at the phone feels like the default. Yeah. Like so, and this is a, a bit of a an offshoot here. I, I was thinking about this the other day. So, when I was growing up, one of the things I wanted, I've, there was a time where I wanted to be like a sports journalist. So I always had in my, I always carried around with me a notebook, mm-hmm. and I would just write down thoughts. Like even mm-hmm. in like high school or college, right. I would go to like a Dunkin' Donuts before church and mm-hmm. 30 minutes of writing down thoughts and jotting down ideas of what yeah. I wanted to say. Yeah. Now, if you go to a coffee shop and just chill with your notebook for an hour, <laughs> like, they might call the cops on you think you're a crazy person. Like, why are you not looking at your phone? Like, right. why are you looking at other yeah. people? Or why yeah. are you... Um, yeah, I think, and, what, I think what you're saying about the volition is, is very striking. Because you presume that anytime somebody looks at you, Anytime somebody, a driver, looks at a pedestrian uh-huh. or looks at a cyclist, anytime they look at you, they will probably be more cautious. Yes. And, and you know, on the ride where I got run over, you know, 50 cars had already passed us on that ride. Yeah. You know, it was just this one stupid truck that decided that to, 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 to run us over. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in the course of my, in my cycling career, thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of cars mm-hmm. went past me without incident mm-hmm. um, and without any sort of problem, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so, so, and it was this one guy who looked up and said, no, wait, I, I'm in a hurry to buy my lottery tickets or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so there's something volitional about that. And so, so you would, you would expect people would make the right choice. Right. I'm going to make a choice that's not going to put this pedestrian in harm's way. Right. Right. Um, even in type A places like, like Washington, D.C. Um, but yeah, it's scarier to think about people are not putting themselves, drivers are not putting themselves in the place to make that choice because they literally are not even aware that the pedestrian is there right. because they're looking at their phone. Right. That's, yeah. That's I, I, I agree with the point that you put on it, and it's an unsettling one. Yeah. Um, and it also should be noted, so we've talked about it from the runner-pedestrian standpoint, um, this this is just the, the raw numbers. Mm-hmm. So part of it too could be people walking while looking at their yeah at their phones. Yeah. Um, but we're obviously coming from the runner, you know, triathlete perspective where you're obviously not looking at your phone while you're running. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. So all of that is to say is, you know, the the older I get, the more I want to be aware of how often I look at my phone and, mm-hmm. and almost set little rules for myself, like you did with the running. Mm-hmm. And said, "All right, like I'm just not gonna have this on when I'm at mm-hmm. when I'm in my car. It's mm-hmm. so easy to just be at a stoplight, glance down, and oh, what's going on here? Because yeah. that's the beauty of Twitter is it always changes. No matter, it's the only thing in the world where like you look at a light bulb for <laughs> ten seconds, you look yeah. down, oh, it's something new. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and, and it's definitely interesting for sure to to kind of see how it's affected our lives. Because I mean, the human brain was not wired yeah. to for this much stimulus. Yeah." Um, you know, in, in research, we talk about uh, causality and, and correlation. Mm-hmm. Um, and correlation is, is when you see a rise in something at the same time you see a rise in something else. That's a yeah. correlation there. Um, but correlation does not necessarily equal causality. Just because there's a rise in one thing doesn't mean there's necessarily it's causing something else. Um, and so, so, yeah, there's a correlation clearly between the, the, the rise of smartphone ownership um, and pedestrian deaths in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, we haven't done the research, and perhaps the research hasn't been done, even though I think it would be interesting to look up and see whether it has been done, on, on whether there is a causal link there. Um, yeah, and you also bring up a good point. I, I should also remind everyone, the smartphone usage was not mentioned in the study published you know, uh, or the report published by the Governor's Highway Safety Association. But you know, the, that was me googling for. But that, I mean, five the, minutes of the, the, the Governor's Highway Association, uh, Safety Association clearly has. Uh, I mean, looking at their name alone, they clearly have a vested interest in not pissing off the technology industry. Um, so right. So, so so they're not necessarily going to include that in there. But but so so I I don't feel like and and we'll look up and see whether there's specific research in this. But I don't feel like it's a huge leap to say that that. That, that there's probably a causal connection between mm-hmm. smartphone usage, um, smartphone ownership, 
and uh, and and pedestrian deaths. Um, I mean, if it's not the sole cause, I'm sure it's probably some cause. But but you cannot turn a blind eye to to that statistic that you laid out at the outset. Twenty seven percent increase in pedestrian deaths while overall traffic deaths are going down. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's shocking. Yeah, I mean, the pedestrian deaths as a proportion of total traffic fatalities is um, just through the roof this year yeah. compared to what it's been in the past. I'm and I'm sure. trying to scroll through the report to find more specifics. but yeah. No, I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. Um, well, like we said, or like Patrick said there, it's, uh, <laughs> we sometimes feel like moms. Um, <laughs> and, and, and that's okay. We're dads. Uh, yeah, yeah, we're dads, yeah. And, 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 and frankly, that's something I'm perfectly okay with. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm perfectly fine playing that role. Um, and this was an uplifting research, but, but it is research that, that, uh, that we did want to share with you. It's, um, you know, we, we, we try and give you, uh, useful research, whether it's useful, uh, research about, about the variance of physical responses to caffeine or about the, uh, the apparent, um, correlation between, uh, smartphone ownership and and pedestrian fatalities in the United States. And so uh, this is certainly something I think you can use. Um, Last words? Uh, To everyone who ran the Publix half or or full this past weekend, congratulations. That really was just a fantastic showing on on a number of levels. Um, I was was talking to some folks at the Atlanta Track Club, and they mentioned ITL by name, and they just talked about how it was – there was so much positivity coming from our tent, mm-hmm. from people on the course, and I mean that's really what this sport is all about: is encouraging each other to be the best that we can be, the best version of ourselves, whatever that means. And so, to everybody who was there, kudos on on a job well done. And and kudos on on for all of those you helped out with the the walking with Kyle P's foundation, uh, the the. Uh, extending those best version of ourselves aspirations to people who normally wouldn't be included in, in foot races. I appreciate that as well. Uh, next week, we should give a preview because this is also an uplifting thing. Mm-hmm. Right around the corner is... Boston Marathon. The Boston Marathon. And so next week, we're actually going to do a preview uh, of the Boston Marathon. We're going to put that out for you. And so that's something to look forward to. If you're running Boston, if you got your participant newsletter in the mail mm-hmm. this week, then uh, then by all means, make sure that you, uh, you listen to us when we put out our podcast next week, our Boston Marathon preview. Yeah, or if it's your goal to reach Boston, maybe this can serve as uh, inspiration. Or you're going to be a fan or something else like that. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Good point. Uh, thanks for joining us, everybody. And there you have another installment of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance. Thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, don't forget to reach out to us on Twitter, at Pleasant Podcast. Uh, you can check out our blog, mostpleasantexhaustion.blogspot.com, or you can go to Facebook and find us there, facebook.com slash pleasantpodcast. Don't forget to visit ITL Coaching on the internet at itlcoaching.com, at itlcoaching on Twitter, or at facebook.com slash performance. Finally, of course, is my wife, the travel agent, who can help you out with any travel planning that you need. You can find her on Facebook as well, facebook.com slash MEV. You can drop her a line at caseytravelplanner at gmail.com. That's K-A-C-I-E travelplanner at gmail.com. Or just visit her website, caseytravelplanner.com. Once again, this is George Darden. On behalf of Patrick Ollinger, we appreciate your listening to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. See you next time.